Let me pray for us, and then we will get into our passage for today. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the preaching of your word. Uh, Father, it is a gift that we take for granted so often to have direct revelation from you in your word. Um, And so today we humble ourselves before it. We treasure the fact that you have been so kind to us as as to give us a whole book of your words um, to know how to live, to know how to please you, to know how to live for you. And I pray that even tonight you would open our eyes in a, a new way to your word, that you would bring us alive to it. And I pray that um, we would see something new, that something um, would pop out at us from your scriptures tonight, um, that we would come away changed, that we would come away challenged, um, and that uh, most importantly, that we would come away loving Christ more. Um, yeah, we thank you for this time, and I pray that you would be with us as we, as we submit under your word. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off by reading our text. And I encourage you to actually get out your Bible so that you can see the words on the page. Um, The phone is fine too. We're going to turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. This is one of those psalms that I I cannot even hope to do justice. uh, Because it is... It's so, it's an amazing psalm. The content and the words are just so powerful, and I'm really daunted to, to preach on it. Um, and I'm feeling my inadequacy today, but I'm going to try. So, so bear with me. Um, let me read it for us. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. As we've said all throughout this series, um, the Psalms model for us how to live as faithful Christians. The book of Psalms teaches us the language of faith. Tonight we are looking at what I think is one of the most important Psalms because it encapsulates the core of the Christian life. And my hope is that we'll be able to adopt this pattern that it gives us and follow it in our own lives. I think we'll see that the pattern that this psalm offers us is one of true satisfaction, true joy, and true life. Our main idea for tonight is a good life is a God-centered life. A good life is a God-centered life. And on our passage, we'll look at three confessions that David makes about God 
that characterize a God-centered life. Three confessions about God that characterize a God-centered life. We're going to start by looking at the title of the psalm, verse 0. It says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This refers to a time in King David's life when he was in the desert running away from Absalom, his son. Let me set the scene a little bit by reading from 2 Samuel 15. Um, For time's sake, I'm going to skip over some verses, but close your eyes if it helps you imagine this picture. Absalom is David's son, okay? Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. The conspiracy grew strong against David and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escaping for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the book Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But... If he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This psalm takes place in a very sad time for David. He's been betrayed and overthrown by his own son. He and his people have to flee from Jerusalem, God's city, his home, and hide in the wilderness for months to escape death. What heartbreak he must have felt to be hated by his own son and for his son Absalom to usurp his power in such a way. What despondency and weariness and hunger and thirst And despair must he have felt to walk in the heat of the desert for days in order to escape certain death at the hands of his own son. Have you ever been to Joshua Tree? It's beautiful, right? Imagine Joshua Tree except no trees, just desert for miles and miles and miles. 
and you're walking in this desert. No food, no water, no shelter. Walking for days, always looking over your shoulder, watching to see when the horses will come riding over the, the hill to overtake you, to cut you down. Keep this picture of King David escaping into the desert, walking for miles with little food and little water in your mind as you reflect on the words of this psalm. Let's start with stanza one. Let me read it for us again. Our first point is God, my greatest desire. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Given the context of this psalm, hearing this might be a little bit confusing. David is in the middle of the desert. He's hungry, he's tired, he's thirsty. His son is on his tail, ready to kill him. And yet in the midst of it, where is David's mind? It's not on the sand. It's not on the heat. It's not on how thirsty and how hungry he is. And it's not on the fact that his own son is trying to kill him. His mind is on God. The as at the end of the fourth line is a little bit misleading because it makes it sound too much like the dry and weary land is just a metaphor. But no, this is literally what he's experiencing. Hunger, thirst. He is literally in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what David is doing here is that he's using his current surroundings to draw a connection between the physical need for God, or his physical needs and his need for God. He's drawing a connection between those two. He's saying, I may be hungry. I may be thirsty right now. I may die but my true and greatest need is in God. I need God. His physical needs are sharpening the reality that he needs God. This need is visceral, it's urgent, it's life-threatening. Earnestly I seek you has this connotation of intensity and priority. And the mention of both his body and his soul shows that he needs God so much that his whole person is involved in this yearning. So in this yearning, what does David do? He goes searching for God. Verse two, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because he thirsts for God, he searches for him and finds him in the sanctuary. And beholding God satisfies the thirst of his soul and the weariness of his flesh. This is a turning point for David. He seeks out and beholds God. And it is this looking at God that then informs how he lives. Beholding God's power and glory gives David strong faith, a confidence in God to be faithful to his promises and committed to his will. The reality that David is displaying here is that desire is the heart of every human being. Because we are made for God, Apart from God, we, are always, we will always be searching for something to satisfy us, to fill us up, to give us life. Therefore, every single one of us is going to earnestly seek fulfillment 
Everyone is going to faint and thirst for something. And everyone is going to search the world high and low for the thing that will put their souls at ease and will fill them up with life and meaning. Spoiler alert, of course, for us, the only true fulfillment will be in God. And in the end, as people who do know the reality of God, for us, you can either indulge in the world and be satisfied in God, be satisfied in the peace of your circumstances. You can choose to, you, or, sorry, you can be, you can choose to indulge in the world, or you can choose to be satisfied in God. You can choose to drink salt water or fresh water. You have a choice. A choice to desire and thus love the things of the world and be endlessly thirsty, or to desire and thus love God and be eternally satisfied. Jesus says in John 4, 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Stepping in the right direction starts with turning from the world and turning to God and saying, I commit my life to you, God, because only you can satisfy the longings of my heart. Just like David, it looks like going to God, seeking him in his sanctuary and seeing him, beholding his power and glory, seeing him as all-satisfying and all-powerful. But that choice of the world or God continues every day. What does that choice look like? It looks like small things, like when you wake up in the morning and pick up your phone before you pick up your Bible. Or like when the clock strikes 2 a.m. and you choose to keep scrolling through TikTok. Like when you skip youth group or church to do something else. Like when you choose to yell back at your parents or like when you compromise your convictions or beliefs to fit in. There are small things, but it also looks like big things. It's like when you choose to go to that party, when you choose to surround yourself with people who like to drink and have fun. It's when you choose to open up your computer in the secret of your room and go to those sites that you know you shouldn't go to because you want to feel good. It's like when you choose to look at your notes during a test because you have to get that good grade. You see, what you want, what you desire, what you earnestly seek, what your flesh faints for, what you thirst after, these things will ultimately guide the direction of your life. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the eyes look, the finger scrolls, the body acts. Whatever desires rule your heart will rule you. You are ruled by what you most treasure. And I assure you that when you, your desire is on anything other than God, anything, it's going to fail you. You know that. It's going to leave you unsatisfied. It's going to drain the joy out of your life. The world is so deceptive an enemy that it will tempt you with promises of so much good, but only leave you with the bad in the end. But notice in our passage how David doesn't dwell on the folly of indulging in the world. Rather, he dwells on God. The solution to pushing out inferior worship is superior worship. It's enjoying an overwhelmingly satisfying picture of God. David does this for us in two places in verses 1 and 2. 
The more obvious of the two is first how he seeks out God in the sanctuary and beholds his power and glory. But the more subtle and the more subtle way that he does it for us is in verse one. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Now, I don't take this to be a trite confession of commitment to God. It's um, an Old Testament perspective, or an Old Testament perspective on this confession is really packed. And I won't be able to, to speak to it completely, but to summarize, saying, you are my God, rings of the main theme of the Old Testament and the great goal of all of the covenants that can be encapsulated in a passage like Leviticus 26, where God says, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. He says it elsewhere, Jeremiah 30, verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. The great blessing and the hope of the Old Testament is that God would dwell with his people and be their God. And to hear David respond to the greatest promise from God in confession is to attribute God the greatness that he deserves. It draws our mind, it draws to our minds a picture of a God big and powerful, who is committed to delivering, loving, and establishing his covenant people, a God who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. David confesses and affirms that this God is his Lord. He shall bow to no other. O God, you are my God. Not fame, not recognition, not accomplishment, not success, not good circumstances, not peace, not power, not riches, not women, not pleasures of the world. You and you alone are my God. Only a big God like you deserves to sit on the throne of my heart. And as David sees this picture of God, as he beholds him in his glory, look at the conclusion that he comes to in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's conclusion is worship. Giving praise to God because of the all-satisfying, infinitely valuable nature of God's steadfast love. This love of God is so precious, so beyond any estimable worth, so irreplaceable and lovely and life-giving that he would throw away anything for its sake. It's the same conclusion that Paul comes to in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Consider this for a moment. Is this a confession that you can make? that being loved by God is better than life itself. That no matter what happens in life, no matter if you lose everything, no matter how hard life gets, that as long as you have Christ, you have everything you need. Can you say that? When I think of other examples of people faithfully living out this conviction that God's love is better than life, I picture Abraham placing his only son, Isaac, his future, everything good in his life, the proof of God's love and commitment to him upon the altar because obeying God and fellowshipping with God was better than life. 
I picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to the Babylonian gods and choosing death in a furnace because faithfulness to their loving God was better than life. I picture Polycarp of Smyrna, the disciple of John and early church father tied to a stake and when commanded to recant his faith in Christ as they readied to light the fire beneath his feet, I hear him say, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? God's love is better than life. And if we cannot make the same confession, if we do not trust that God's steadfast love is truly better than anything this life has to offer, then we must ask ourselves if we have truly beheld God and his steadfast love. Have you ever seen God? God must be the object of our desire. Look back at the whole stanza. Look at this progression of thought. David has this insatiable hunger and thirst for something that the world cannot satisfy. So he rightly turns to God and seeks after him. He looks upon God in the sanctuary. He sees and experiences his power and glory. And because he has beheld God, he makes the conclusion that God's love is better than life. More than anything this world has to offer, God is better. Just God, only God forever. And how does he respond? He responds in praise. It falls out of his lips. He sings. He lifts up his hands. He lives in a way that honors God. This is the overarching pattern of the Christian life. We recognize our need for a savior. We behold God, his power and glory in Jesus Christ. We conclude that his love is better than life and we worship him. If this pattern does not match your experience, turn to God. Living a God-centered life is patterned after this model of seeking, finding, enjoying, and worshiping God. The first, um, sorry, what was it? <laughs> the first confession that David makes about God that characterizes a God-centered life is that God is my, un my greatest desire. The second is in stanza two. It's God is my constant delight. That's the second confes confession. God is my constant delight. The first stanza showed us that God is to be our greatest treasure and better than life itself while showing us that pattern of the Christian life. The second stanza shows us that God is also to be our constant delight. Not only is he deserving of our desire, but he also has the ability to fulfill our desires as our delight. That's how satisfying God is. And I want to consider this idea that God is our constant delight that he can satisfy us completely in the context of our difficulties, the difficulties of our life. Let's look at verses five through eight. Um, and just for clarity's sake, so it's a little easier to follow the logic, we're gonna flip verses five and six. Okay, so we're gonna read six, five, seven, eight. It says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. This stanza shows us a pattern of how to rely on God through the storms of life. The logic starts with the setting. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The image brings to mind long, sleepless nights of waiting and waiting for circumstances to change and for God to act. I imagine David up all night watching over his people in the wilderness, on the lookout for any signs of an approaching threat, while his heart is downcast and longing for home, longing to be reconciled to his son, longing for the peace and prosperity God promised him in his land. But that longing in the midst of his suffering takes a quick turn when he remembers God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 7, for you have been my help. His longing and his thirsting and mourning turns satisfaction, turns into satisfaction and joy. Verse 5 says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Consider that image. He's thinking about fat and rich food in the middle of the desert. How? How is that possible? The only way that it's possible is that God himself is so satisfying to David that even in the midst of deep suffering, he can enjoy the full satisfaction of his soul. The circumstances of his life have no effect on the greater, more important spiritual reality um, that his greatest need and his greatest desire is being met by having a God, even if he has nothing else. This is his confession, that God's steadfast love is better than life at play, in real life. Can you think of a time when you experienced full satisfaction after eating a great meal? I grew up at a, a Chinese-American church in Texas, and oftentimes after church we would go to eat really good Chinese food, um, and we'd sit down at the big circle table with the Lazy Susan and just get heaps and heaps of food. Chalong bao and other dumplings, seafood, crispy noodles, pork chops, fish, so many sautéed vegetables, so much rice. Um, and we would just feast and stuff our faces, eat and eat, eat and eat. And then after that, we'd drive home and just food coma on the couch and nap for like two hours in the afternoon sun. Take that image that you have of enjoying your favorite meal, of just stuffing yourself, and apply it to your soul. What does that look like? What does that feel like? For David, God's steadfast love is that overwhelming, over, is so overwhelmingly satisfying, it's so powerful, so pleasing, and so delightful that just from remembering God, just thinking about him fills his soul with that level of satisfaction. And it has nothing to do with who David is. It has nothing to do with how holy or godly or near to God he is. It's all God. He's just looking at God. He's just setting his mind at God. It's not that David is so aware. It's that God is so awesome and so abundantly good and so appealing and marvelous and magnificent that David's very being is overwhelmed with satisfaction just by thinking of him. 
in the midst of his physical hunger, the longing and the yearning for a meal, he is focused on his soul, the satisfaction of his soul, and God satisfies his yearnings. Guys, when our spiritual need, our greatest spiritual need is met, it doesn't matter what we experience in life. We can have confidence that God will provide for us through it. All of it is simply to sharpen our appetite for God, who alone can satisfy the longings of our souls. This is the wonderful thing about God's love in the midst of suffering. God, in his sovereignty, can purpose hard things in our lives for good so that we desire and treasure him more. I want you to consider what if the wilderness the difficult experiences, the circumstances that are keeping you awake right now have purpose? What if the long sleepless nights are given to you by God? What if, like David, they are meant to be opportunities for you to remember God and to fill your mind with him? What if the hardship of life, the pain and the hurt that you feel today are somehow the setting where God wants to work in your heart to trust him. God worked in David's life through his suffering. Those tears and long sleepless nights only increased his confidence in God's steadfast, all-satisfying love. Being sanctified by trial taught David that his greatest need was in God, that he alone would be able to satisfy him. And that means that in the midst of our suffering, When we ask ourselves, why is this happening to me? We have an opportunity to train ourselves to say, this sharpens my appetite for God. This makes me want God. And when you look on him, when you think of him and his goodness to you in Christ, he is able to satisfy you with just himself. I love how verse 7 has both a past and a future tense. My soul will be satisfied in the future because you have been my help in the past and you will protect me in the future as I hide under your wings. God in the past, the present, and the future is protecting you and providing his power to you. And like a small bird hiding under the wing of its mother, we can hide under the safety of God's protection in a way that produces joy. We are not only safe, but we are happy in God. David's conclusion to this stanza is in verse 8. Look at it. My soul clings to you. David's final state is clinging and being upheld. He both holds tight to God and he is held tight by God. My soul clings to you has this connotation of desperate perseverance, strenuous and active devotion and pursuit, but... The mention of God's right hand supplies a firm assurance to his clinging. The right hand, what is generally regarded as the stronger hand in the Bible, is what truly ensures David's safety as he clings to God. In my mind, I picture a child held in the strong arms of her father as they brave a storm. She desperately clings tight to her father's chest as the wind beats against her back. But the true power that keeps her secure is in her father's arms, not her own grip. Without the divine power of God's right hand upholding David, he would ultimately not be able to cling to God in the first place. 
from verse 1 to verse 8, all of David's confessions of faith are only possible because the object of his faith is powerful and worthy of his trust. His devotion, his longing after God are initiated by God's steadfast love, God's power and glory, God's help in the midst of trial. David has simply tasted and seen and is responding accordingly. His conclusion is that even through this season of suffering, of hunger and thirst in the wilderness, fearing for his life, God is watching over him, protecting him, providing for him, working good out in his life, loving him. This is the attitude that we are able to have in the midst of difficulties in life. God has always been faithful to us. He's always upholding us. He's always protecting us. And he always will be. So when life gets hard, and when we feel our weakness and our struggle and our frustration and hopelessness beat down on us, we must remember God. We must behold him. This is the pattern of relying on God, who is our constant delight. The last confession that David makes is in stanza three. God, my perfect justice. God, my perfect justice. Okay, here's the final stanza, verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Okay, so in this stanza, David paints a picture of um, of justice, ret- retribution. Those who seek to destroy him will be destroyed. And David alongside his people will stand and they'll praise God for the way that God has delivered them. It's this gruesome but victorious picture of justice, of the good guys prevailing. Now, usually when we come across passages like this in the Bible, sometimes it can be hard for us to know what to do with it. Like it sounds a little violent. Um, But I think we actually need to dig a little bit deeper and actually look at what is being explicitly said. Here, David isn't praying for judgment on his enemies. He's simply stating that the coming reality, that this is the coming reality for those who oppose him. Because those who oppose him are ultimately opposing God. He isn't asking God to kill his enemies. He's simply stating the fact that it's going to happen specifically because he knows that God is going to be consistent with his character. This is a picture of David's trust in God. We know that God is not only a God of love, but a God of justice too. And for David, knowing that God is a God of justice means that he can have confidence that apart from God's forgiveness, those who do evil will receive just punishment for their evil. The judgment of David's enemies is a sure reality because he knows God's character. He's saying, here's what I know to be true about God, and here's how my circumstances are changed by it. God has revealed himself to be powerful and glorious. God's steadfast love is better than life. God is my satisfaction and my joy. God has always been my help and my protector. I rest and rejoice in the shadow of his wings. God's right hand upholds me. And that means for David, for his current situation, that God will prove himself to be faithful in the midst of his circumstances. 
in making this declaration upon his enemies, David is saying, I have absolute confidence that God will follow through in accordance with his character and be true to his word. Notice how he says in verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. When he says the king, he's referring to himself. Instead of, but instead of just saying I, David makes a statement about who God has declared him to be by using his own God-given title. Referring to himself as the king of Israel is an expression of his confidence that God cannot fail in making him who he has declared him to be. The stanza is a confession that God will act consistently with his character and that he will follow through with what he has promised. Who has God declared you to be? What has God declared to, to do in your life in the scriptures? How might he accomplish justice in your life? Let's think about a few passages in scripture. Romans 8, 17. God has declared you to be his child and a co-heir with Christ. Ephesians 1, 14. God, through his word, through his Holy Spirit, has promised you an inheritance in heaven, namely the gift of enjoying him forever. Romans 8, 35 through 39. God makes you more than a conqueror by killing his own son that you can survive tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, because there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, God has declared that he will perfectly sanctify you and present you blameless when Jesus returns. How might we translate what David says here into our own confession that God will be consistent with his character and make good on his promises? These are all things that God has promised to us. If you're suffering, it might look like saying, God, I don't know what you're doing or how you're going to work this out for my good, but I trust that you love me. I trust that your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts and that you're going to be near to me even in the midst of how much this hurts. How else might we express our confession and confidence that God will be consistent with his character? It might look like if you're battling with indwelling sin that you just can't seem to overcome. It might look like saying, God, I hate sin, and I want it to be out of me now. But as I wait... I have confidence that you will make good on your promise to sanctify me completely one day. Please keep me faithful to fight sin every day for your name's sake. If you're anxious about tomorrow, it might look like saying, Father, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I do not have the eyes to see the future or to know your will but I trust that you are working all things together for good because I have been called according to your purpose and because you have planted a love for you in my heart. So I will trust you with today and I'll trust you with tomorrow. God will be consistent with his character, guys. He's going to be faithful. He will follow through with his promises. God will carry out justice 
on the last day when he wipes away every tear and makes all things new. And that should provide us rest. To conclude, I want to I want to point out this running theme throughout the three stanzas. If you just take a, a quick scan over the passage, you might see it. It's singing. The result of all this good that God does in our lives, in being our greatest desire, the satisfaction of our souls, being our help and hiding us in the shadow of his wings and being better than life, all of it results in worship, in praise, in singing. It all results in God's, in God's glory, in giving glory to him, in enjoying him. Look at verses three and four. David says, because your steadfast love is better than life, I, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. If David is going to bless God as long as he lives, that means that David, that, I'm sorry, that means that God is going to pour out his steadfast love on David for all of his life. Read it together. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. As a Christian, you will never stop experiencing the steadfast love of God. It's impossible. There will never be a day when your God is not loving you. Whether or not you are aware of it is a different matter. That also means that you will never lack a reason to praise God. You'll never lack a reason to sing. And on the days when we feel like life is so devoid of joy, that we, th those are the days when we must sing God's praises and lift up our hands in his name. Has God done anything good in your life? Praise him. Has he loved you in any way? Praise him. That will be the theme of our lives every day until we die. And even after we die, we'll forever be singing joyfully the praises of God because his steadfast love is truly better than life itself. Like I said, preaching this psalm just, or once, just does not do it justice, and especially me. And there's so much more in this passage that we just didn't get to cover, and so much God here to enjoy that just can't be accessed unless we actively practice meditating on these truths and using this language of faith every day. So my closing exhortation to y'all is, it's really simple. Just use this language of faith. Practice saying these things. Make this your confession. When you wake up every day this week, pray this psalm. Say to God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Because you have been my help. 
In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Guys, let this be the language of your life. And as God every day is more and more at the center of your life, I think we will soon find that we are living life as it is meant to be lived, with fullness of joy, because our lives are centered on our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to live life as it is meant to be lived. But so often in our minds, we can formulate this wrong idea of what that actually means. We can say that life is meant to be lived in enjoyment of the things of the world, in satisfying the desires of our flesh, in being who we want to be, in doing the things that we want to do in making up our own truth, in um, affirming and um, enjoying the world, the evil of the world. Father, we are so deceived. And so we need help every day, Father, to see you, to behold you, and for all of our affections and all of our priorities and all of our values to be rearranged, to be built around you, to be centered on you, we need desperately to see that your steadfast love is better than life itself. So Father, help us. I pray especially that we would be able to use this kind of language when we talk about our lives. I pray that we would be able to affirm in our daily lives that we yearn for you, we long for you, we thirst and hunger for you. I pray that we would be able to say that your steadfast love is better than life. I pray that we would be able to, to say that we sing for joy in, in um, the protection of your, of your wings. Father, I, I pray that this psalm would become a, a language of faith for us and that you would help us to be transformed as we use the language. May we be sanctified. May we trust you. May we love you and treasure you. And may all of it result in glorious, glorious singing. Be honored in the way that we live our lives, Father. And change us, help us to live lives that are centered around you. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.